Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome back. March 30th, Tuesday, March 30th, 2021. Mark Bauerline is a professor at Emory University and an editor at First Things, a regular guest here. And I turn the monologue over to him in a continuation of our effort to define liberalism, including classical liberalism. He writes, there was once a time in the good old days when conservatives in America could rely upon liberals to maintain classical liberal principles that would shield conservatives from suppression. In the mid-20th century, liberalism had become the outlook of the majority of the elite, but that didn't mean the proactive ousting of conservatives from jobs and pipelines, as is happening today. As Lionel Trilling wrote in the preface to the liberal imagination in 1950, quote, in the United States at this time, liberalism is not only the dominant, but it is the sole intellectual tradition, close quote. Nonetheless, conservatives who objected talked about it more as a hegemonic condition, not a blackballing process. Liberals dominated the university in 1962, for instance, but they wouldn't think of shunning a conservative colleague just for being conservative. If he did his academic work and proved a collegial colleague, he could express his anti-New Deal views all he wanted. A fellow who was at Berkeley during the free speech movement told me once that if a conservative patriot got up on a box in Sproul Plaza back then and argued for more American aggression in the Cold War, people would argue back, but they would not shout him down. Conservatives might feel ignored, dismissed, or disputed, but not persecuted. The heritage of liberalism, from John Stuart Mill to Richard Rorty, demanded that the conservative be allowed to speak. Rorty wanted him to lose, of course, to be prevented from setting policy and running the government, but only through a democratic process, free expression, and a fair election. Something inside Rorty and other old-fashioned liberals told them that to close the marketplace of ideas on political grounds spelled trouble. It took a bit of spine on liberals' part to keep illiberalism in check, whether it came from the left or the right, but they had it. To be a liberal was precisely to uphold the First Amendment, to respect respectful dissent, to welcome pluralism and observe rights of privacy. No compromises, no wafflings. Within institutions, liberals insisted, people must be judged on professional grounds, not political grounds, and they would bristle if they saw some partisan hackery going on. That very distinction was essential to liberalism and liberals. Liberals predicted that obscuring it would indeed poison the workings of those institutions. If we can't withhold from the workplace matters of partisanship, they believed, we would find that liberal norms and practices ranging from academic freedom to the scientific method to free markets would decay. But again, it took a certain toughness. You had to have some intellectual confidence to reject a tyrannical practice, such as repressive tolerance when it was espoused by someone as brilliant 
as Herbert Marcuse. You needed lots of moral firmness to stand up to the racial militants of Angela Davis and the bodyguards who accompanied her around campus. It took courage to publish a book bound to evoke controversy such as Charles Murray's The Bell Curve. No bleeding-heart liberal would do, nor would easygoing live-and-let-live types. You needed hard-nosed liberals such as John Kennedy and Henry Jackson to hold the line, to keep the public square open. They could do it because they understood what the left would do if it had the power, and they didn't like it. They're not around anymore, those muscular liberals. Or rather, if they do have that tough sensibility and hold fast to liberal pluralism, they remain liberals but end up on the outs with their brethren. The rest of the center-left goes along with cancel tactics and the open politicalization of liberal institutions taking place today. That billis and angry leftists lead the way is no surprise. It's what they've always wanted. But the liberals who say nothing as it goes on right under their noses, the liberals who sign letters and statements that brazenly trample liberal principles, who sit obediently through diversity orientation sessions that assume they are unconscious bigots and who let their kids undergo critical race theory units in school, they outnumber upright liberals 20 to 1 or more. They're, per- they're patsies of and for the left, pushovers, passive, weak. It's embarrassing. We have liberal mayors who in the summer of 2020 wouldn't defend their own cities, college presidents who denounce their own colleges at the command of leftist professors, and a parade of liberal figureheads apologizing dramatically for a slip or a foible that deserves hardly any notice at all. Last July, 350 people associated with Princeton University signed a letter denouncing racism on campus and demanding a host of reforms. One was this, and I quote, constitute a committee composed entirely of faculty that would oversee the investigation and discipline of racist behavior, incident research, and publication on the part of faculty following a protocol for grievance and appeal to be spelled out in the rules and procedures of the faculty. Guidelines on what counts as racist behavior, incidents, research, and publication will be authored by a faculty committee for incorporation into the same set of rules. And procedures, close quote. A liberal of old would read that proposal and blurt out, you've got to be kidding. A small group of professors will define racist research and proceed to judge and in some cases punish colleagues accordingly? That's the opposite of liberalism. Given the ever-expanding definition of racism, we easily imagine that research into racial score gaps on standardized tests might come under suspicion, especially if the gaps are explained on grounds other than racism. Could essays on Huckleberry Finn be censored if they do not explicitly denounce the N-word in the novel itself? Perhaps. And who is going to serve on this law-giving surveillance committee? Well, individuals who have no reservations examining the opinions of others and making them pay for the wrong ones. In other words, very illiberal people. And yet, yet, a daunting number of scholars and thinkers signed on to this Committee of Racial Safety, and among them, no doubt, are many dozens of central li- centrist liberals, uneasy with leftist bullying. They went along with it, though. They couldn't say no. This is a change in temperament, not belief. You see it all the time. 
The liberals I know don't like cancel culture, and they don't like to see private expressions go public and become the basis for condemnation. They care about racial and sexual identity, but prefer that it not become overemphasized in social affairs. And they want to see conservatives treated fairly. But they haven't the stomach for it. Set our liberal alongside a social justice warrior and the imbalance of passion is ridiculous. He has the moral scruples to resist, but not the stamina. Instead of stepping up and battling for free speech or religious freedom or the freedom of assembly and conscience protections, all of which the left tries to take away from conservatives, the liberal adopts any of a variety of defenses. There is, for example, the oh-it's-not-so-bad posture, which says that the left now and then does cross a line, but that those cases are rare, so let's not exaggerate. Or there is the blasé cosmopolitan approach whereby the liberal smiles and nods, agreeing with the conservative complaint, but chalking the left's attacks up to the human comedy and muttering about what fools these mortals must be. There is also, too, the concerned sympathy tack in which the liberal joins with the conservatives in lamenting the illiberalism, but finding in it a silver lining. Yes, they're out of control, but I can tell that the pendulum is swinging back. Soon our liberals, assure us, will return to normal. They mean it, I imagine, but they're no help, not to conservatives. At best, these defensive behaviors are self-serving. At worst, cop-outs and rationalizations. Liberals have the power, but they won't save us. They can't save us. It's not in them anymore. It does us no good to accuse them of hypocrisy either. Double standards don't bother them. They've made their peace. Liberalism is no longer a philosophy. It's a personality, flexible, situational, and attuned to prevailing winds, which can lead you to being blacklisted, which is especially interesting to me since it was the liberal who taught us the evil of the blacklist. Teach that evil, they do no more. Practice it, oh sure. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960. Give us a call with what's on your mind. Uh, got some great guests coming on today. Um, we're going to be joined by Sheriff Mark Lamb. He's the sheriff here in next door, Pinal County. Uh, he's been all over the news talking about the border crisis. He's going to join us at the top of the next hour and then the uh, aforementioned in my monologue, Mark Bauerlein, is going to join us uh, to discuss uh, his essay that I quoted from on muscular liberalism and classical liberalism and conservatism. It's kind of the second installment of my take on classic and classical liberalism, which uh, we were asked to delve into by Rob in surprise about a month ago and have now done two monologues on uh, watch this. I guess I, maybe I'm late to the party and you were earlier to it, but um, I'm noticing a lot of conversation now out of Washington, D.C. about uh, the next big bill, 
which is infrastructure, roads and bridges and airports and that sort of thing. Notice the language the left is now using. I am seeing Democrats like Ed Markey, U.S. Senator from Massachusetts, talking about the need to pass this infrastructure bill to, among other things, combat systemic racism. Systemic racism as the argument for an infrastructure bill. And I, and I say watch it because when people come up to you and talk to you, if they do or as they do, about that, call them on it. See, I, I think a lot of people just say these things, like the Green Grocer and Vaclav Havel's essay. They just, they just hold out the sign or post the sign, Workers of the World Unite, because they kind of know they have to. Whether the workers of the world unite or not is about the 890,000th concern of that green grocer. And I'm going to guess that most people who are touting infrastructure plans, lots of money to unions, what Grover Norquist calls an English word for boondoggle, tongue-in-cheek, French word for miasma, um, they're going to be mentioning systemic racism as a core, as a as a as a reason for it. Ask them why. I, I I think we do well to breaking down these signs of exquisite, these shibboleths of exquisite empty meaning. Yeah, I wanted to buy some carrots, but what do you mean, workers of the world unite? Yeah, I um I think the roads on Camelback could be improved. Thought my local taxes went to that, but uh, what do you mean about system? How, do, how does how does improvement on the I ten change in, change our systemic racism? Do you plan to bus in people of underrepresented classes from other states to come and do the work here, so it doesn't even help grow the local economy? It's kind of a follow on word to something that I didn't think we should take seriously, but I now think we do need to take seriously, and that's environmental racism. You've heard that phrase here and there. Because racism is the new urgent crisis of our time. We learned that last year when we had physicians and media telling us that racism is a cause of COVID, and thus large gatherings protesting racism in the time of COVID, when large gatherings were forbidden, was okay because they were taking on the most important aspect of our lives, something as important or more important or a driver of COVID, and that was racism, systemic racism. Environmental racism, however, really frightens me because if one man's unfortunate death in a city most of us haven't traveled to, if one man's unfortunate death in a city most of us haven't traveled to constitutes the cause to have rallies and riots throughout the country, and justify them in the time of COVID, 
as having as much importance or more importance than COVID, and that being systemic racism. Think about what they did to us in the name of COVID. Think about the violations of property and individual and educational rights they did to us in travel. They did to us in the name of COVID. Now, what if there's something more important than COVID? What can they do to us? Let's now call it systemic racism. What can they do to, the, to us that's worse and harsher and more <clears throat> infringing on liberty than COVID except something that's more important than COVID, which they told us systemic racism was because it was worth risking getting COVID to fight? Now think about environmental racism and what they could do to us in the name of that. Racism is, is racism, isn't it? Whether it's environmental or systemic. I would assume environmental is part of the systemic, just as I assume the zombie apocalypse is a species of the genus apocalypse. But I don't know anymore. All I know is that it's trite to quote Rahm Emanuel saying, never let a crisis go to waste. But it's trite because it's true. And what I have been speaking about for the last five years about the crisis industrial complex, that's the problem with industrial complexes. They don't just go away and wither on the vine once their job is done. They keep going and going and going, looking for ever-expanding cascades of reasons for their existence, their control, their crackdowns, their power grabs, their marginalizations of people who don't agree with them. This was the very warning, of course, when we first heard the phrase military-industrial complex in 1961 from Dwight Eisenhower, that was the warning. These things can become behemoths and parasites that keep growing and growing and growing and growing. They're not energizer bunnies. They're environmental and systemic buddies, bunnies. I'm really worried about it. Watch the talk. Schumer has talked about infrastructure bills as important to combat systemic racism. If you have a friend who does it, ask him what they mean. I'd love to know the answer. John Dombrowski <laughs> deserves better than this. Oh no, we, this is this is in 1974, John Denver. You asked for this? Hit. This was his first hit on March 30th. It's amazing he had a second one. He, and he did. I mean, he was pretty popular guy. So back I just then. criticized you, my dear friend. <laughs> yes, it's okay. And your musical tastes. I'm used to it. <laughs> I didn't get a heads up from my producer, so I apologize. <laughs> Not at all. I'm the one that you know. Him on to you do know it. good music, John. That's what concerns me. Well. John Dombrowski is who we're speaking with, of course, from Grand Canyon Planning Associates. Let me give you a proper introduction before I tear you down. Oh yes. GrandCanyonPlanning.com is his website. I think he is uh, to be considered the most trusted financial advisor and decent man in the Valley and a big contributor to all our causes. Thank you. John, thank you. Yes. We do culture and economy with you um, 
every day at this time. Does do you have something more to say about John Denver? Can, can not we... really. Unfortunately, he had an untimely death yes, when he, he crashed one of his uh, experimental planes. But here on the other side of it, uh, really on a more serious note, the day that President Reagan was shot back in 1981. I remember it yeah. so very clearly. Yes, it me was, too. It was it was a heck of a day here mm-hmm. early on in his administration, a couple and a half months in. Yes. And I'll be talking more about that, of course, later. Mm-hmm. Markets uh, didn't really care too much about that one way or the other today, it doesn't look like. And a lot of the talk right now is turning to um, a different kind of stimulus spending, if you will, but that's infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the interesting things I find about stimulus spending and infrastructure, John, is these guys tell us who promote it, they tell us that um, it will increase the size of our debt because of the spending. These things typically don't end up being budget neutral. No. So is it stimulus if it increases the debt? Because well, in a way, yeah. I've always thought that economic growth, the point of stimulus, is something and perhaps the best thing that we can use to hammer away at the debt. Uh, you know, a very valid point. Uh, obviously, there are different meanings to uh, words when it yes. comes to politics. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> when it comes to Washington. Yes. You know, so, uh, yes, your stimulus uh, version versus theirs is, is totally different. You know, certainly it could cer- help people get back to work. That could be one aspect of it. But uh, would it create enough tax revenue uh, versus the actual spend that it would cost for the projects? Probably not. Uh And my always concern is anything that the government does, how would they be managing what they're spending uh, during this infrastructure? Who's watching the budgets on these things? You know, when President Trump was in uh, office, uh, I believe that many people would have thought, hey, as, as, as a builder in his own right, uh, he he understands the cost of things yep. and and staying on a budget and trying to manage that. But I just find that Washington today they they don't have any clue uh, about you know managing a budget. When's the last time we had a balanced budget? I agree with that, and I think the question asked of anyone who proposes anything, the first question we should be asking is how does this affect the national debt? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because I think we need to get back to the idea of what a true stimulus is. I have an idea on stimulating the economy. Cut more regulations, cut more taxes, Mm -hmm. uh, index capital gains further, lower the corporate rate, and you'll be generating, I think, a boiler maker of of prosperity in this country, I think. Yeah, I mean, without question, Seth. And unfortunately, though, that doesn't seem to be the agenda of the current administration. And we're going to have to wait and see over the next couple of years until the next election cycle occurs. And maybe we have, have a little more say in the, in the game. I just, I just worry about policies that confiscate, that are proved to be confiscatory on those that are creating the jobs. It mm-hmm. seems to me jobs is what you want. I don't see how it's easier. I know you agree with me. I don't think – I just have never seen how it's easier on the – employee class when you make it harder on the employer class. Yeah, I did read something on another note too, Seth, today, which was uh, real estate prices again continuing to rise. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is, at some point, there's going to be a a top to the real estate market. I'm not saying that it's here or or, or when it's going to occur, but everything runs in cycles. I just want to caution people not to overextend themselves uh, when it comes to real estate, just be cautious. If you do see something and you want to be a real estate investor or a landlord, certainly nothing wrong with that. But just be careful. Make sure you you know you look at all the angles of that before you uh, continue to 
invest and don't over-invest in any one area of any market. And that's what you're great at, looking at those angles. Diversification, you bet. Mm -hmm. And if folks want to get in touch with me, they can schedule an appointment right on our website, grandcanyonplanning.com. Securities and advisory services offered to Client Wind Securities LLC, a member of Finman Sipkin, an investment advisor, Grand Canyon Planning Associates LLC, and Client Wind Securities LLC, not affiliated. Thank you, John Dombrowski. Thank you so much. Talk tomorrow. You bet. God bless you. Phone number here is 602-508-0960. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show, portions of which are brought to you by my good friend Solar Sandy. Solar Sandy brought integrity back to solar in Arizona. The actual difference between Solar Sandy and other solar companies is that she actually figured out how to truly zero out your power bill and do it with great customer service. It's so important when going solar that you do it the right way. Solar Sandy has the formula. She wants to put more of your hard-earned money back into your pocket. When you go solar, Solar Sandy will pay 12 months of your solar payments, any portion of your power bill for the first 12 months, and, because it's March Madness, Solar Sandy's promotion for the first 50 families will receive a $1,000 signing bonus. That's right. No solar panel payment, no power bill for 12 months, no one thousand dollar bonus at signing there's no better time to go solar with solar sandy than right now go to asksolarsandy.com again that's asksolarsandy.com and tell her i sent you six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero it's hard to keep track of the messaging from the biden white house on a day-to-day basis they have perfected in two and a half months, they have perfected the lily pad leap, where one day can be entirely different from the next, and the day previous can be memory hold into oblivion. Yesterday, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, the head of the CDC, was talking about the feeling of doom and gloom she has. You want to play it? Sure, go ahead. Realizations have also increased. The most recent seven-day average, about 4,800 admissions per day, is up from 4,600 admissions per day in the prior seven-day period. And deaths, which typically lag behind cases and hospitalizations, have now started to rise, increasing nearly 3% to a seven-day average of approximately 1,000 deaths per day. When I first started at CDC about two months ago, I made a promise to you. I would tell you the truth even if it was not the news we wanted to hear. Now is one of those times when I have to share the truth and I have to hope and trust you will listen. I'm gonna pause here, I'm gonna lose the script, and I'm gonna reflect on the recurring feeling I have of impending doom. We have so much- It's a recurring feeling of impending doom, a recurring feeling of impending doom. Everyone's entitled to their feelings, I suppose. I don't know that I want my CDC director to be talking to us about upcoming doom. But today she had a different message. Today her message was, and I quote, Our data from the CDC today suggests that vaccinated people do not carry the virus. I'm wondering if I can get that audio here real quickly. Bear with me for a second. Our data from the CDC today suggests, um, you know, that that vaccinated people do not carry the virus, don't get sick. Um, and, and okay. Fine. Just in the clinical trials, Fine. But it's also if they don't carry the virus, 
and they don't get sick, remind me why vaccinated people have to wear masks and engage in travel-restricted behavior. As Alex Berenson said, if it's true that vaccinated people don't carry the virus and don't get sick, then all restrictions on vaccinated people should end immediately. In fact, they should end immediately anyway, (laughs) as all restrictions should, period. But that's a different conversation. She changes the message. You, You will recall she was the one who said all schools should be open. And the next day, Jen Psaki had to walk it back, saying she was speaking in her personal capacity. So when she spoke, no doubt, of her impending feeling of doom and gloom, perhaps that, too, was just her in her personal capacity. She did say that, but she didn't lose it if you watch it. She's reading it. That's the funny thing. I don't think she knows what it means to lose the script. It means you're not reading from a script. And she was reading from a script. All but worse, that someone would write down that she has an impending feeling of doom and gloom and let that ride through a script and get that approved through the various council's offices. Really? CDC director wants to tell us she has an impending feeling of doom and gloom. Well, why? So people will maintain social distancing and mask wearing and mitigation lockdown and restriction strategies. That would be the only reason, right? Because we are vaccinating at an incredible rate here. Over 50 million Americans now vaccinated. What are we doing? We're going to have, we're, we, we have now suggested we will double the number of vaccines, 200 million vaccines by the end of next month. Okay. Okay, but that's gloom and doom. Mm. Nah, our data today show that the vaccinated people don't carry the virus or get sick. And then what? Or is this game where she just puts out this kind of thing and then we turn to Anthony Fauci for what to do with it? Is that how it works? Because you don't hear Anthony Fauci actually talking about this kind of thing Rachel Walensky's talking about. She's talking about vaccine efficacies and raw numbers. What Fauci is used mostly for is how do we implement our lives? How do we change our lives to comport with them? So maybe it's just kind of a it's kind of a good cop bad cop thing between the CDC and Anthony Fauci. Although it's hard to find who the good cop is when you're digging into such a conspiracy of foolishness. That's what it is. A Conspiracy of Dunces was an old great book. Do you ever read it, Bill? This is a conspiracy of foolishness. It's the either most miraculous thing that we should all urgently do this vaccine, or it's the least potent, successful vaccine in the history of vaccines. Because you can't change your life. What? Yes and no. Yes and no. Yes and no. Anyway, I, I, I say all this and I talk about all this because it's not it's just it's not going away. No matter when we reach peak vaccination of 80, 85 percent of the population, it's just not going to go away. There's way too much invested in it. 
power and control and media and political leverage. Why do I say political leverage? Brand new study from the National Bureau of Economic Research shows quite an interesting taint about COVID-19 coverage. And I want to tell you about it when we come in, when we come right back. You see this crisis industrial complex, it embodies a lot of, it embraces, it covers a lot of institutions. And the media is part of it. That's the trouble with Christ, that's the trouble with industrial complexes is we once relied on the media to expose them. They understood how to do that when it was the Department of Defense under Ronald Reagan. They don't understand how to do it anymore because they are part of it. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Sherry's in Phoenix. Hello, Sherry. Hi, Seth. I love your show. Thank you. And uh, the reason I called is that um, my mother and stepfather religiously got flu shots every year, and she got Alzheimer's at 73, and I found out there's three books out that say flu shots cause Alzheimer's. Hmm. Uh, One is by Michael Savage, and I don't know who the other two are by, Mm -hmm. but I'm... uh, I am not getting a flu shot because of that. All right. Well, I I always my my belief is this. I, you know, M- Michael Savage is uh, you know he has a PhD in botany, so you know take that for what it's worth. But my my own view is this is between you and your doctor. You know, I can't trust you know a national or local radio host. I'm just telling you what the public policy thoughts I have about it are. I'm not going to ever give you medical advice, but I, I I would suggest that it, as a matter of public policy, should be between you and your doctor. Um, as far as vaccines go, I'll just tell you my own belief my own belief uh, my own belief on them uh, with regard to COVID. I believe if you're in a highly vulnerable population, it probably makes sense, but ask your doctor. Um, I believe if you're not, ask your doctor. And um, that 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 that's that's the first set of considerations. The second set of considerations: look up the side effects and what you're willing to risk. Um, the Wall Street Journal says that the side effects can be fever and muscle pain. The Arizona Republic says the side effects can be joint and muscle aches. The FDA itself says the most commonly reported side effects, which typically lasted longer than several days, were pain at the injection site, tiredness, headache, muscle pain, chills, joint pain, and fever. Okay, I thought fever, aches, and pain for several days was what happened when you got COVID, if you're under 75. So you have to make all of those considerations and decide whether, you know, you're 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 more worried about the side effects if you're more susceptible or vulnerable to them, or you're more worried about COVID and if you're more susceptible and vulnerable to that. I just think it has to be an individual decision. Um, flu shots. Uh, I know a lot of people that have had tremendous success with them, and I know some people who just for some reason, whatever their constitution is, it gives them. Um, it gives them a, a bit of an illness. I happen to be in that second category. So I got one once, haven't again. 
I'm a big believer in supplements and exercise. I take a lot of balance of nature. I try and exercise almost every day. I have been exposed to a lot of COVID. I've been probably more exposed to COVID than anyone outside of an ER doctor, honestly, goodness, and maybe more so, and I haven't gotten it. So I don't know what to tell you, but I sure as heck know this, neither does the government.